My thanks to my uh, friend Jim Shaddix and uh, for my friend Danny Aiken for my uh, time here. Uh, I'm thankful to be with you, and it has been a sweet welcome. So thank you for our time together and for the encouragements that you have given. In my uh, first chapel time with you, I said that I would talk about what Christ-centered exposition is. And in that time, I was trying to, in some way, deal with caricatures that are inaccurate and at the same time to say, this is what exposition is that sees the grace of God unfolding in all the Scriptures and culminating in the work of Christ, which is not saying that every text mentions Jesus, nor should it be twisted so as to make it do that, but nonetheless to say that every text stands in some relation to the person and work of Christ in ways that it is either predicting or preparing or reflecting or resulting in our obedience to the work of Christ. Now, that was the what, but I promised you then that I would say why such exposition is important. Because my own experience is, particularly when we're in academic settings, that the, the conversation ends and the debate begins with the question of who's got the right interpretation. And my concern for those of you who are preparing for ministry is to say, I don't want that to be the end of the conversation. Merely saying, do I have a better or different interpretation than you do? We have to think about what is the pastoral, what is the ministry purpose for Christ-centered interpretation, and that's where I want to take you today. Let me just begin this way. Once upon a time, there was a king who was walking along the top of his castle walls, and as he looked out into a distant field, he saw that there was a child who was collecting flowers. And as the king looked at the flowers that were being put into a bouquet, he recognized that the ribbon that was wrapping the bouquet was royal in color. And the king recognized that the flowers that were being collected by the child were being collected for himself. But as the, as the king watched the child, because it was a child, along with the flowers, the king watched the child put into the bouquet some weeds and some ivy and some thistle. And so the king called to his oldest son, and he said, your younger sibling is in the distant field, and he's collecting flowers for me, but they're not all that they should be. So when your sibling comes to the castle gate, I want you to take out of the bouquet the weeds and the ivy and the thistle, and I want you to put in some flowers from my garden, which is precisely what the older brother did. When his younger sibling came to the castle gate, he took out the weeds and the thistle and the ivy, and he put in the perfect flowers from the king's garden. The child came on through the gates into the throne room of the king, and the child, holding up the bouquet that he had gathered, said to the king, Here, my father, are the flowers that I have prepared for you. 
the king received them, knowing all the time that what had made the flowers acceptable is what the older brother had done for the child. All right, that's the parable. Who is the king? You can talk. Who is the king? God the Father. Who is the older brother? That's Jesus. Who's the child in the distant field? That's us. What are the flowers being picked for the king in the distant field that, with good intent, nonetheless are spoiled by the weeds and the thistle and the ivy? What are those flowers? Our works. What are the flowers that are put into the bouquet by the king through the sun? What are those flowers? Christ work in our behalf. Now, that story is over a thousand years old. That is known as Anselm's flowers. And it is the reminder that when we stand before the king, we do not stand before the king with our righteousness to establish our gift to him. It is his righteousness that makes our works acceptable to him. And that is not just a message for the end of our days. That is the message for every day of our lives. What makes our work acceptable to God is not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness in our behalf. And the reason that we excavate the grace of God from all the scriptures is that we are making sure that we and God's people know I am right before God because of Christ's work, not because of my work. I am living in response to his grace, but my works would never earn them. After all, all I got are filthy rags. Unless they are made right by him, they are not right at all. The reason that we need to take care to say that there is an unfolding and unwavering message of grace that is culminating throughout the Scriptures is that we should recognize as those who are ministering to God's people how, how common and typical it is for people to confuse their who and their do. They think that what they do establishes who they are. But the gospel is exactly the opposite. Who we are establishes what we do. If you put it in theological language, in a theological place, you take the wording of Richard Lovelace, and he says, the the average Christian establishes their justification by their sanctification. To put it in common language, if you say to most people in the church, are you okay with God? The internal dialogue that immediately goes on in their brains is this. Am I okay with God? Well, how am I doing? In which case, what they do is establishing their status before God rather than their status before God establishing what they do. It is not our sanctification that establishes our justification. It is our justification that is the ground and the fuel of our sanctification. And and it is difficult for all of us to operate against the human instinct that says, my identity is formed by what I do, and the gospel that says what I do is based upon my identity. In, In classic language, what we say is this, 
The imperative, what we do, is based on the indicative, who we are, and the order is not reversible. When Herman Ritterboss penned those words, I can remember being in seminary and reading it and kind of going, yeah, that, that's right. The imperative is based on the indicative and the order is not reversible. Everybody should know that. But it did not sink into my life, to my habits, to my thought, to my scripture interpretation. I mean, you have to recognize what the Apostle Paul is saying when he's giving all those instructions on husbands and wives and parents and families and masters and servants, when he begins it all by, by saying, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Yeah, there's the imperative. Be imitators of God. On what basis? The basis of who you are as dearly loved children. It just changes the way you read Scripture and ultimately the way you preach it. When you begin to understand what God is saying over and over and over in His Word is, you must know who you are first before you seek to serve me because your service will not make you mine. Because you are mine, that is why you serve me. I, I can remember as a child, I have to do this in the King James because it's the way I memorized it in the King James. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Now, I can just roll it off, you know, and say the right words, but it's not what I heard. In my heart, this is what I heard. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable act of worship. Is that what it says? No. But isn't it what you hear? You'd be a good living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. Listen, the word holy should have been a cue. Is, is your holiness what's going to make you acceptable to God? No, it cannot possibly. Holy and acceptable are not statements of what you will become. They are declarations of what you are. You are holy and acceptable to God. How can that possibly be? I know my weakness, my frailty, my sin of this very day. How can I be holy and acceptable to God? Where did the verse begin? In view of God's mercies. The Apostle Paul has just spent 11 chapters saying this is what God has done in Christ to make you acceptable to himself. Now, in view of these mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to him. Now, the apostles got a lot to say in the following chapters of Romans of what you are to do. But he is saying, recognize who you are, what you are, your identity in Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer who lives. Christ lives, where? In me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's his identity, not mine. I'm robed in Christ's righteousness. His spirit lives in me. His reality is my identity. His righteousness covers my unrighteousness. And that's not just going to be a statement that I make when I stand before the throne room at the end of my life. That is my identity every day. Hebrews 10, 14, God has made perfect 
forever those who are being sanctified. Isn't that a wonderful, he's, he's made perfect those who are living it out, being sanctified, but already holy and righteous before him. And so when you begin to kind of grasp what it means to say, the imperative, what I do, is based on the indicative, who I already am, Ephesians 2, 6, already seated in heavenly places, already resurrected, already justified, already positionally sanctified. Then I begin to recognize I'm I'm living out of the reality of the joy of who I am in Christ. Not, not the fear of the ogre in the sky getting me. I am right before God. It will change every relationship in your life. When it truly sinks in, the imperative is based on the indicative and the order is not reversible. I tried to be square with you when I began with you, Bala not preaching that way when I began my ministry. And it wasn't just my, my preaching that was affected by, you know, you live up to God's standards and then you'll be okay with God. It was reflecting the way I would treat my children and my spouse and other people. There was a time that, that I would say to my oldest son, Colin, you're a bad boy because you did that. Now, it's very easy to say, and a lot of us in this room have been raised under certain statements like that. But as common as it is in this culture, I want you to recognize how distant it is from the gospel. Colin, you're a bad boy because you did a bad thing, which theologically means his identity is based upon what? His behavior. And the gospel is exactly the opposite. You may think it's silly, but Kathy and I would put ourselves under a certain discipline the way we even talk to our children. I would say, Colin, don't do that. You're my son, and I love you. I want what you do to be based upon our relationship. I don't want our relationship to be based upon what you do. Because that's the nature of the gospel. It's the nature of the gospel lived out. Those of you who are married, it affects the way we treat our spouses. I mean, I'm enough of a North American male of a certain generation that my heroes are either Harrison Ford or John Wayne. You know, the the, the great unmoved movers, you know, they're not going to be affected, you know. And so when there is tension with my wife and me, I've got two choices. I can get real mad, but I I can't do that because I'm a preacher. And... The alternative is I can get real quiet. She'll figure out what she did. And I began to treat her according to what I perceive as her offense. But according to the gospel, we are heirs together of the grace of life, each covered by the blood of Christ, each perfectly lovely to him. And are there things for us to work through? Of course there are things for us to work through, but with with love and respect and regard for identity in Christ, me for Christ, and her for Christ, and in treating each other with love and respect, not operating on the basis of performance, but on the basis of relationship before God and with each other. The way we deal with people in the church. 
Just my human tendency, if somebody is firing at me, my immediate response is I want to do what? Fire right back. To treat them according to their actions. But what if I perceive that, that inside and behind the eyes that are firing at me is Christ in them? That is my eternal brother or sister in Christ. Then as much as there may be hard things to work through, I treat with respect and dignity and love as I would treat Christ my brother. Why? Because the imperative is based on the indicative and the order is not reversible. If it changes relationships, if it changes imperatives, the reason we do them, how we do them, then you begin to recognize that this this grace is not just print on a page. It's not just an interpretive methodology. This is the fuel for the gospel in terms of what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about other people and how it changes and transforms the Christian life. To actually understand the the purpose of Christ-centered interpretation, you have to actually get into your own theology of change. What, What do you believe changes people? What is your theology of transformation? What do you actually believe is the source of power in the Christian life? And if you're thinking about this power of sanctification, there are certain things that will be obvious that we can't deny. What, what is the source of power in the Christian life? Certainly, one aspect of power is knowledge. I mean, if you don't know what God requires of you, you can't do it. And so we have to know what God requires of us and what blesses us. In kind of standard terminology, that means preaching includes explanation of duty and doctrine. The fact that we are talking about grace does not remove from the fact that people need to know what does God require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That doesn't change. To be able to serve God, you need to know what he requires. But you need to know more than that. As necessary as it is, it is not sufficient Simply the fact that you know what to do does not transform you. The fact that you know what to do does not mean that you will do it. How do you know that, Christian? Because you're in a seminary, and you know what to do, and you don't always do it. Necessary, but not sufficient. Simply knowledge of what to do. What else is needed? You need to know who you are. To have power in the Christian life, you need to know who you are. Now, I'll start very simply. What, what does that mean? You need to know, among other things, that you are remarkably, irretrievably, inexorably human. <laughs> you need to know you are human. And therefore, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to men. You are more vulnerable than you can possibly imagine to sin. You believe you are impervious, and you are actually setting yourself up for a fall. You need to know how vulnerable you are, or you are in great danger. There's no temptation taking you but such as is common. That does not just mean that you struggle with something and somebody out there probably shares it. No, there's no temptation taking you but such as is 
common, shared. There is nothing that goes on out there, the seeds of which are not already in here. Every one of us. We, we point and we accuse and we blame. He's like, wait, wait, who are you? There's no temptation taking them, but such as is common. How do I know that? Because the brother of Jesus named James said, what, if you've broken one commandment, how many have you actually broken? All of them. There is no sin of which the seeds of which are not already in us and of, to which we are very, very vulnerable. And if you don't know that, you will not take proper precaution because you're human. Now, because you're human, not only are you vulnerable, you can be helped by practical advice because you're human, and practical advice helps human. And that means in our preaching, we not only remind people that they are vulnerable, we give them practical helps. Now, a number of you are already leaders, and you may be in positions where you have said things to young people or to older people, such as I do and have. You may say to somebody, now, you listen to me. When you get off work today, don't you dare take that road home. Because if you take that road home, you're going to stop by that place or that person, and you're going to be in trouble. So you go another way home. Now, you may not know it, but you're just summarizing Proverbs 4. <laughs> don't, don't put your foot on the path of the wicked. Don't go near the path of the wicked. Instead, turn and go the other direction. Why? Because that's just practical advice. And because we are human, we are helped by practical advice. And just as our preaching includes duty and doctrine, our preaching has to include vulnerability and practicality. It's all necessary and insufficient. God's people need to know something else. Not only are they human, if they are children of God, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they are redeemed. They are fundamentally different than they were prior to the work of God by His Holy Spirit in their lives. What does it mean for them to be redeemed? They are loved by the Father, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch those? They are loved by the Father, united to Christ, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And when the Apostle Paul summarizes all of those things in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says what? Therefore, in Christ you are a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, let me tell you this. Even in the church of Jesus Christ, when you tell people you are a new creation, they go, that is wonderful. Still looks like me. Still sounds like me. Still weighs about the same. What do you mean? I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. We can go back to essential statements in church history to clarify our understanding. When you were unregenerate, said Augustine, you were our unregenerate nature. You were known posse. Known, Picare. You were not able not to sin. I'm not saying you murdered somebody every day. 
I am saying absolutely nothing you did was for the glory of God. Nothing. You were not able not to sin. That is the definition of what it means to be unregenerate. To not have the living spirit within you. That, that is what it means to have an old nature that's not a new creature. You are not able not to sin. But you are not that anymore. You are redeemed. You are loved by the Father, united to Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you have a fundamentally different spiritual nature. And what is that fundamental, different, new nature that you have? You are now what? able not to sin. We are not talking about perfectionism. We are talking about power. Greater is he in you than what? He that is in the world. You were once not able not to sin. That is not you anymore. You are made new. Greater is he that's in the world, that's in you than he that's in the world. I am crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer. It's not my strength. It's not my ability. It's not status. But Christ lives where? In me. And the life that I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He died. He went to the grave. But he lives. Where does he live? In me. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead indwells me. So the apostle says, what? He has given life to my mortal body. I have power such as I did not previously have to understand and obey my Redeemer because I'm redeemed, because I am made new. And, and what the apostle Paul says about that, we sing about it with joy, but we don't recognize the strength of it, is you are no longer a slave. Romans 6.6 6 and 6.14, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. What does that mean? It means change is possible. Hope is real. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. Satan will sit right there on your shoulder and he will say, you cannot be fixed. You cannot be helped. There is no way that you're going to change. You've struggled with this for years. It's in your background. It's in your family. Life can be no different. You're a mess and you can't be fixed. And we, with the authority of the word of God and the truths of the gospel, need to say, that is a lie. I'm a new creation. I have been made able. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I have hope again. I have power. Because listen to me, if you do not believe you can win the battle, you've already lost. And so God is saying by his word, with the truths of the gospel, you are new. And there is power that is yours. And you are no longer a slave. Now, as wonderful as that truth is, it sets up a terrible question. Because if you are no longer a slave and sin no longer has dominion over you, then why do you still sin? And the biblical answer that we hate is we sin because we love it. It's not that it has greater power. 
than the gospel. It's not that it has greater power than the Spirit. We give it power by loving it. We love the lust. We love the bitterness. We love the ambition. We love the reputation. We love the sin. Let no man say, said James when he's tempted, that he is tempted of God. God cannot be tempted, and he tempts no man. But we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own lust and desires. Christ came into the world as light into darkness, but what did men do? They loved the darkness more than the light. Sin does not have power in our lives because we could not have victory. Sin has power in our lives because we love it. Now, if love for sin is what gives it power, how are you going to displace love for sin? Hear it? If our, if our sin has power because we love the sin, how are you going to displace love for sin with a greater love? with a surpassing love. Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon of over a century ago, the expulsive power of a new affection, <laughs> which ultimately means that power in the Christian life is not simply a consequence of knowledge, but it is a consequence of love. I don't mean to be schmaltzy, I don't mean to be sentimental, but I need to be real with you. Why do we say that the gospel's power comes from our love for the Savior that displaces love for the sin? It is purely for this reason. There is no more powerful human motivation than love. Greed is not more powerful. Intimidation is not more powerful. Fear is not more powerful. Guilt is not more powerful. What is the most powerful human motivation? It is love. What drives the mother back into the burning building? It is love. Against all self-advantage, self-gain, it is love for another. It is a surpassing love. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to say, what, what is the source of the love that is compelling and constraining in the Christian life. You already know it, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Now, right at this moment, I hope a penny is dropping. Why are we excavating the grace of God from all the scriptures so that we just have another obligation in our biblical interpretation? So that yet, yet another burden of having gone to seminary. <laughs> no. It's because we recognize we love because he first loved us. And when I begin to understand by the, by the right teaching of the gospel thread that is moving all through scriptures, I say, look how, look how unrelenting, look, look, look how powerful, Look how unwavering is his love for me. If he has loved me so, how my heart wants to love him.
And as much as there are people who will say, you can't keep talking about the grace of God because if you talk about the grace of God, people will take advantage of God's love for them. I will say, is that possible? Of course it's possible. But not when Christ's love has replaced all other loves. Not when it is the supreme love. After all, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why is that the greatest command? It's the foundation of all the others. It's, it's, that, it's that fuel as well as the obedience that's being required. It's, it's recognizing when this is the most profound and significant and compelling love of my life, it will drive all other loves away. And, and I am so human that what is true of everybody else is true of me. As a human, I will do precisely what I love the most. Every human will. So if I love Christ above all other, then I begin to recognize that, that source of his love for me is developing in me a compelling love for him, an overwhelming love for him. John Bunyan, does some of you know this? John, John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, he was actually one of those people that you were so proud you learned to identify who they were and could spell it in third grade. Remember when you learned to spell the English language longest word? Anti-disestablishmentarianism, remember? And believe it or not, John Bunyan was an anti-disestablishmentarian. He believed that the king should not establish who the clergy was. Now, Bunyan's a Reformed Baptist, and he's thrown into prison. Now, he's not the only one thrown into prison. There are the Anabaptists, the Semipelagians, and they also are anti-disestablishmentarians believing the king should not establish the clergy. But, but you know, if Reformed Baptists are kind of way over here on the Calvinistic scale, where, where are the Anabaptists? Whoa, they're way over there. So here you've got Bunyan and the Anabaptists, you know, in prison at night, not even knowing if they're going to survive the next day. So what do these fellow believers do together at night? Well, they debate theology, of course. <laughs> and the Anabaptists would say to Bunyan, you, you can't keep assuring people of God's love. If, if you keep assuring people of God's love, they'll do whatever they want. And Bunyan's famous answer was, no. If you keep assuring God's people of God's love, they will do whatever he wants. What did Paul the Apostle say? The love of God does what? Constrains us. Against all our self-preservation, against all our personal good, the love of God constrains us, compels us in this ministry of reconciliation, this living for our Savior. It's, it's love for him that's more powerful than any other love. Because after all, if you said, if the source of love is his love for us, what will become the effect of that love? Holiness? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commands. John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my... If, if yours is a surpassing love for me, you'll want to honor me. You'll want to walk with me. When I began pastoring, as we were talking, I was in seminary and... 
preaching on Sundays at a little bitty country church an hour and a half away from the school I would drive to, and I would preach on Sunday mornings. Little, little country church, a good Easter, might be 15 people, you know. But I learned to preach, those poor people listening. But one uh, Sunday, I, as the single pastor, drove over, and an elder took pity on me, and, and he said uh, after the service, would you like to go on a picnic with my family? Now, I'm single, and food is being offered. What did I say? I said, you bet. <laughs> and so we drove in that part of the country up what is known as the Great River Road, where the Mississippi River is over a mile wide. It was a beautiful fall day. The sky was blue. The sun was shining. The leaves are these brilliant colors of, of gold and scarlet. And we, we had this wonderful picnic. And at the end of the picnic, the 20-something-year-old daughter of the elder said to me, would you like to take a walk with me? Now, the sky is blue. The sun is shining. She's got blonde hair, green eyes, red sweater, and she says, would you like to take a walk with me? What did I say? I said, you bet. And I've been walking with her for about 40 years now. Why? Because she's beautiful. Why wouldn't I want to walk with her? Why do we unfold the grace of God in all the scriptures? so that our hearts will say, if his love is that beautiful, then I want to walk with him. And I will give myself to and for him. If he has loved me so, I will love him back. And that does not just become holiness, that becomes service. Because Jesus said, inasmuch as you love me, you will love the least of these my brothers. You will love those who are the outcasts. If you really love Christ, who will you also love? The ones that he loves, the unlovely, and the outcast, and the widow, and the orphan in distress. There are people who say if you concentrate too much on the grace of God, it will just become consumeristic, egoistic religion, just all about you and Jesus. And I have to kindly say that is impossible. If you are overwhelmed with love for Christ, your heart will have his loves. The very things that are his priorities will be your priorities. Not because you are earning his love. Because he has loved you so in all of your undeservedness, in all of your poverty, in all of your overwhelming evil, he still loved you. And when you know that, you will recognize people all around you who are as unlovely but loved by Christ. And because you love him, his loves will become your own loves as well. The question we have to, to ask as well is if, if holiness and service are the effect of his love entering and overwhelming my heart so that his love is a surpassing love of my own heart, how do I fuel that love? How, how, do I, how do I enable it to be a full tank in my own heart? Which is basically answering the question of what is the fuel of love in the Christian life? And as odd as it may seem in a message, we're trying so much to emphasize the importance of the grace of God. The fuel of that love for Christ is the means 
of grace. Now, it's kind of seminary language for things like prayer and Bible reading and communing with God's people. But the difficulty is for most people, even in the church, they do not believe in the means of grace. They believe in the means to grace. I'll read my Bible. I'll do this awful thing. I'll get up early and read my Bible so the ogre in the sky won't be mean to me. Now, if you think that's not their theology, you listen. Oh, I knew it was going to be a bad day. I didn't have a long enough quiet time. Wait, what, what, what did you just say? The ogre in the sky did not get enough filthy rags from me today. So now because he's mad at me, I had a bad day. Listen, our, our reading of Scripture, our prayer, our communing with God's people are not bribes for the ogre in the sky. They are the bread of life. They are the nutrients of the gospel. As we are, by reading the Scriptures, reminding ourselves how pervasive and overwhelming and unwavering was the love of God for us. That's why I'm reading the scriptures. I'm not trying to get brownie points with God to check off the box for today. I'm saying, God, fill my heart again. Teach me your ways that I may love you as you have loved me. When I pray to God, I say, oh no, you know, I gotta, gotta bow down so he'll be happy. No, I get to commune with the creator of the universe I, I, get, I get to have conversation with the, with the God who gave his son for me that I might be with him forever. This is the beginning of the walk that will go on eternally. And I get to have it in private with my God in this day, in this moment, in this very place. And to commune with God's people, not only to receive from them the gifts of the Spirit as they are communing with me, but my having the ability to help them as well in this process. That God has privileged me to be a co-laborer with Christ in every walk of life. And when I am perceiving that, then these means of grace are not bribes. They are the bread that not only draws my heart to Christ, but fills my heart with Christ. So that love is being reinforced over and over again by the preaching of the word, by prayer, by Bible reading, by the communing with God's people. Those are the ways in which God is witnessing to me his love so that my love for him will continue to grow and grow and be stronger and stronger. And the consequence is I am made stronger, as is every child of God. My family is um, divided into kind of two sets. We have what we call the big kids, the older kids, and then we have our, our caboose that came along a lot later. That's what we call our Mac baby. Do you know what a Mac baby is? Uh, Middle-aged crazy. Um, we recognized at some point that our kids were getting older, and we loved having kids. So we had another. But I will tell you, as she got into her teen years, I would, um, I would say to my wife at times, I can't keep up with this gal. I mean, she is strong and active and beautiful and involved in so many. I just can't. I'm getting old, and I can't keep up with her. And my wife's phrase was, as much as we poured ourselves into the older kids, we got to keep pouring into this kid, too. And what that meant for me, because my job has always involved a great deal of travel, is whenever I was home, no matter 
how early in the day Katie's high school activities started, I would get up and I would fix her breakfast. Uh, just cereal, but I would call it breakfast. And, <laughs> and as I was filling up her cereal bowl with milk, I would, I would think to myself, what, what is my duty, my obligation, my love as the father of this young Christian woman and I would think, you know, even as our filling, I'm filling up her cereal bowl with milk, my, my job is to fill up her heart with love for Christ. Why? Because at 18, you and I know there are trials and there are temptations ahead. But if her heart is full of love for Christ, she cannot be more safe or more strong. And that is not just true of my child. That is true of every child of God. If their hearts are full of love for Christ, they cannot be more safe or more strong. And the reason that we excavate the grace of God from all the scriptures is we don't just want to have the right interpretation. We want to have God's people empowered by the love for Christ that is their joy. And the joy of the Lord we know will become their strength. There was a time in my life, I must tell you, I believe the job of the pastor was to get people to do what they don't want to do. Do you mind my telling you that is a horrible job? I don't believe that anymore. I believe that my job is to enable God's people in every message I preach to love Christ more. They won't be more strong or more safe. In fact, the joy of the Lord will be their strength. And that, my friends, is a wonderful job. Teach them of Jesus. See it as your duty, your joy, your privilege to enable them to love Christ more. It is a great job to which I commend you in Jesus' name. Father, will you so bless my brothers and sisters that they, having perceived how wondrous is Christ's love for them, might fountain it to others and not only be strengthened by his love for them, but strengthen others by that grace that they share from him. May the joy of the Lord be our strength and those to whom we minister. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.